Amen. You can have a seat. Kids, you are dismissed. Head to your classes. Have a great day. Learn a lot. Have a ton of fun. If you're staying in here, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here of Cedar Mill Bible Church. And, you know, we always say I'm I always say I'm one of the pastors at Cedar Mill Bible Church, but that's really wrong because we're doing a series on the church, and the church is not a place. It is a people, so I'm one of the pastors of Cedar Mill Bible Church because we are a community. And we're starting this fall with a series called Why Church? Uh, Pastor Austin said I should rename it Why Church? which might fit today's message a little bit better. I don't know, maybe kind of somewhere in between. Uh, I talked last week about why we're doing this series, how a lot of people, including people in this room, including myself, are asking some good, hard, critical questions about the church these days. And instead of being defensive or dismissive, because Christians can be defensive and dismissive sometimes, if we're challenged, if our thoughts or ideas or worldview is challenged. But instead of being defensive and dismissive, because Jesus wasn't really defensive or dismissive, was he? He always just handled questions, asked good questions in return. That's what we want to do. We want to talk about these questions. We want to allow these questions to sharpen us and focus us on who we are called to be as a community. And so today we're going to dive into one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can grab it and open there. If you didn't bring a Bible today, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and it's going to be on the screen. So you got a lot of options today. Um, It's all the Word of God. It's going to be great. Uh, And I chose this passage because it is the very first time that Jesus talks about the church It's the first time the subject comes up for he and his disciples. And I believe what's said here is central if we want to be the people of God in this world. And I think some of what's said here indicates why the church, specifically in America, is struggling these days. So let's read the passage together. Matthew chapter 16, we're reading verses 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. All right, talk for a minute here about the scene that we have. I want to talk about the setting and what's happening overall, and then we're going to talk about how this applies to our series and these questions we're asking about church. First of all, right away in this passage, Matthew does something important. He talks to us about geography. He tells us where Jesus and his disciples are, and we learn that they are not in their usual stomping grounds. 
They aren't in Capernaum, they're not in Cana, they're not in the Bethsaida, they're not in Nazareth, they're not on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of where Jesus and his crew generally hung out. Instead, they have traveled north 25 miles. By the way, that for us, that's not that far, but for them, it would have been a, a journey on foot. 25 miles north to this city, Caesarea Philippi. This city was right on the edge of Israel and kind of the northern pagan territories. In other words, this city is spiritually pluralistic. It's non-Jewish. It's where a lot of religious practices and traditions converged in one place. In this city, there's Syrian Baal worship, kind of remnants of that from the past. They have Greek fertility gods that are worshiped all over this city. But the primary attraction was this big religious gathering place just at the base of this enormous rock mountain on the edge of town. And it was here that a number of these religious practices converged into one location. One of those was a deep cavern right at the base of this mountain, a deep cavern that was filled with water. And the pagans believed that this cave created a gate to the underworld the actual place where where death and evil itself resided, the underworld. This was the gate to that place. They also believed it was home to the Greek god Pan. And as you can see from the statue of Pan here, this is the Greek god Pan. He is half man, half goat. Pan was the god of the wilderness. He was often associated with a wild, uninhibited life, specifically and including uninhibited sexuality. Among other things, he was known for making noises at night and scaring weary travelers in the darkness. And so from this reputation of Pan, we get the word panic, right? Right from this guy, Pan. Another kind of cultural reference to Pan, and I'm going to ruin this for you guys. Some of you are going to be mad I shared this. That's okay. Peter Pan. Yeah, named after this Greek god Pan. And it makes sense, right? Because what was Peter Pan all about? He was about a wild, uninhibited life. He wanted to live in perpetual adolescence, didn't he? Right, named for the god Pan. And, and the biggest thing we need to understand about Pan, and I'm going to be as discreet as possible here, but I want you to have a clear picture. Every year, often throughout the year, but specifically every year, there was a huge celebration right outside of this cave, right on the edge of this city, where Pan would be worshipped, and they would worship him by engaging in enormous drunken orgies that involved men and women and goats and other animals and often young girls. And that's as far as we will go today. But that's the scene. That's the location that Jesus brings his disciples to. In fact, this city was so famous for pan worship that for the longest time, it was actually named after him. It was named Panius in honor of this God. But then in 2 BC, two years before Jesus was born, probably some 35 years or so before this moment, 
Caesar Augustus gave the city of Panius to Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? He's the Herod from the Christmas story. He's the guy who tells the wise men like, oh, I'm looking for the Messiah too. When you find him, come tell me. And then they decide, eh, it's not a good idea. So they just leave. And then what does Herod the Great do? He goes to Bethlehem and has all the young boys, two years old and younger, murdered, right? That's Herod the Great. This Herod the Great he is given the city of Panius by Caesar Augustus himself. And in turn, he turns around and gives it to his son, Philip, for his 16th birthday. By the way, you, you know you're living a life of privilege when you get a city for your birthday. It's like, what'd you get for your birthday, Tom? I got shoes. I got a sweatshirt. Like, you know, I got a city. Ah, that works. Um, so Philip gets, gets this city and he decides to rebuild it and he decides to rename it. That's when it gets named Caesarea Philippi. He names it after Caesar and himself because he's a real humble kid. Um, and, and as part of his rebuilding efforts, one thing he did is right at the base of this mountain, right next to this cave where all this pan worship was happening, Philip rebuilt and beautified an enormous white marble temple and he dedicated it to the worship of Caesar. Because remember, the Greeks believed that the Caesar was a god. Here's the picture of the scene, kind of recreated. This is what it would have looked like. All this worship happening, Greek fertility gods, worship of Caesar himself. You can see the cave in the background there where Pan was supposedly residing and where he was worshipped. All this stuff is happening in this location. And again, this is where Jesus decides to bring his disciples on this field trip to have a conversation about himself and his church. Here's how Jesus launches the conversation. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Uh, the Son of Man, by the way, is a little kind of phrase that Jesus uses to refer to himself. It comes from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, where this mysterious, divine, and human figure comes to, to save and rule the world. And so Jesus uses this term to refer to himself. By the way, scholars believe that Jesus chooses this term because it's kind of ambiguous, and it forces his his listeners, his hearers, to think, who is this guy claiming to be? He doesn't just outright tell them, I'm Messiah, I'm Christ. He uses this more ambiguous term to sort of force us to think for ourselves. And that's what he does here. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And his disciples, they jump right in. They start going down the list. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. All these guys are the, the big-time heroes of the Jewish faith. And the point is, they may not fully understand yet who Jesus is, but they do know this. He's special. This is more than just some rabbi from Galilee. This guy is somebody. But Jesus wants to push them. He wants to push the question a little further. And so he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, verse 16, you are the Messiah, or you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, we're going to come back to that statement because Jesus says it's central. It is really important to following him and being his church in the world. In fact, listen to what he says. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's just his name. Simon, his dad was Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. 
Peter, by the way, um, at this moment in time, was not a name. It was just a word. Petros, it meant small rock or, or little stone. And so in a sense, Jesus is just giving Peter a nickname here. That's pretty cool if you get a nickname from Jesus, right? He's like, sons of thunder, they got one. Peter's like, I got a nickname, the rock, you know? Dwayne Johnson, this is going to be awesome. So here I am, I'm this little rock. But then Jesus says, and on this rock, and he uses a different word, Petra, which means massive rock or big rock, I will build my church. So let me read it for you again. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Petros, little rock, and on this massive rock, Petras, I will build my church. What is Jesus talking about here? He's not just talking about Peter anymore. He's talking about this confession that, that, that Peter has just made. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is saying, on that statement, I will build my church. Jesus is saying, that is the truth that will center and unite and empower my people in this world. He's saying, that's the statement that takes a bunch of little Peters, a bunch of little stones, little rocks, and makes them together a massive force to contend with. So much so that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's brought them to this place. I just imagine him sitting there with his disciples, pointing down at this place, looking at this cave, the gates of Hades is what they called it, right? The gateway to the underworld. And saying, guys, not even that can stand up to the power of my people when they unite around who I am. Jesus is saying, the sin and evil and perversion of this world do not stand a chance against his church. There's a story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Nazi Germany during the rise of Hitler. And at one point, Bonhoeffer is, he's training Christian leaders at his theological school. And Bonhoeffer was a pretty intense guy. And one of his friends is like, hey, Dietrich, this is all really good stuff. Like, I think what you're doing is good. But isn't it a little much? Like, aren't you a little over the top? Like, what you're teaching seems to be so very radical. So, so Bonhoeffer, as the story goes, takes his friend up on this hill. And from the top of this hill, they could see his theological school on one side. And on the other side, they could see a training base for the soldiers of the Third Reich. And Bonhoeffer says, do you see what's happening here? And then he points back at his theological school, and he says, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And his friend says, yeah, and now I get it. Now I see why you are so serious and intense. Friends, this is Jesus in this moment. He's saying, he's saying to his disciples, my church must be stronger than that. My church will be stronger than that. That's the message of our passage today. Jesus says, when the church unites around me and who I truly am, we will be stronger than all the forces of evil in this world. And so then we have to ask, why? So then why, so often, do we get the sense that it isn't? Why does evil seem to win 
Why are we so easily divided? Why do we fall prey to the temptations of this world so easily in the church? Why is it that less and less people seem to want to be part of what we are doing here? Why is it that Jesus says his church will be stronger than the world and yet our kids, stats tell us, are walking away in record numbers? Well, I want to talk about two things that this passage, I believe, calls for that we must as a church be if we want to be the kind of massive rock and force against Hades that Jesus says that we are and must be. And friends, it really comes down to one question. The question, one central question for the church. Who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to us? We get this one right, Hades is going down. We get this one wrong, you might as well take Sundays off. It's no accident that The very first time Jesus talks about the church, the very first time he mentions the community of people who will follow him in this world together, he does so after asking the question, who do you say I am? They're linked together. Jesus does this because he knows a right understanding of who he is must be at the very center of who we are. A.W. Tozer says, We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. In other words, whoever God is to you is who you will inevitably become. Whoever God is to us is who we will inevitably become as a church. So our first question as a church must always be, who is Jesus and are we reflecting him as we live and walk in this world together? Here's the statement again. The cornerstone statement Jesus says that his church must be built on. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That word Christ or Messiah, it's the word Christos in Greek. It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, which is why it's translated sometimes Christ, sometimes Messiah. And just in case anyone is confused, this is not Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Jesus Christ. It's not like, hey, Jesus, and he's like, it's Mr. Christ to you, buddy. No, this is his title, not his name. It's a title that means the anointed one of God, the one who has come into this world to make things right again. The one who has come to rule and reign and take down evil and bring peace and justice to this world. But here's the problem. Here's one of the big reasons I believe the church is failing to be the church in these days and people are walking away in record numbers. Far too often, the church treats Jesus as companion instead of Christ, as sidekick instead of sovereign, as my buddy Abe Hatch, one of our drummers from Australia says, as mate instead of master. You see, friends, for the church to be the church, Jesus must be Lord, he must be king, he must be the Christ. The reason people are walking away from the church 
in droves is because I believe we have made Jesus more like a consultant than a king. Think about how you approach Jesus, how we approach Jesus so often. We want him to be an accessory to our good American life instead of king and ruler and Lord of our lives. We go to Jesus, again, like a consultant. Jesus, I need some advice. Please, Lord, help me in this situation. Help me be happy. Help me be successful. Help me feel fulfilled. Help me avoid this struggle. Help make life easier for me. Jesus, can you help me? (laughs) How can you help me? Because it's really all about me. But that's not Jesus' main focus or concern for his people. Because Jesus' focus and main purpose for his people is different than ours. Often, we just end up disappointed. Like Jesus, he's not the kind of high-quality consultant I was hoping for. He's not providing what I really wanted him to provide. In fact, people often start to feel, and they don't say it out loud, but they feel it deep in their souls, church isn't really working for me. What does that mean? That just means Jesus isn't helping me with my agendas. Because if you're just looking for a life of ease and comfort and pleasure and success, Jesus is a lousy consultant. You should hire someone else. Because Jesus came, his goal, his mission, his agenda is to lead his people in a battle against injustice and oppression in this world. Jesus says in this passage, he came to mobilize us to storm the gates of Hades. And yet, I'm just looking for a promotion, Lord. Right? Like, I'm, I'm just looking for, you know, a cute boy or girl to marry. Like, can I get a date? So some people are praying for, right? And again, it's not bad to pray for that stuff, but there's something so much more. Friends, let me ask us this question. Seriously, ask this question of yourself today. Have we gathered here for a nice, encouraging service today so we can feel better about ourselves and then go have brunch? Or is this a training ground for following the king and advancing the kingdom of God in this world against the forces of evil? Those are very different things. One is the church. Another is a social club. You see, if it's just A, if we're just gathering here to sort of feel good about ourselves and check the religious box, then you know what? I'd rather spend my day at the beach. People all the time are saying stuff like, you know, I'm just gonna go, I'd rather just go for a, I just, I did church in the woods today. I took a hike. I'm not saying that's always a bad thing. I'm not saying if you decide to take a hike some Sunday that I'll come to your house and condemn you. But, but if church is more than just sort of a place to find serene peace and comfort for your soul, if we are actually being mobilized to be the people of God in this world, then maybe gathering together and hearing teaching and worshiping and sharing in the Lord's Supper matters a bit more. We must never forget that the foundation of the church is Jesus is the Christ, the anointed king and savior and leader of his people to live out and advance the kingdom of God. We've watered that down and so people are going, well, why am I doing this anyway? Why would I waste an hour or two on Sunday morning when I could just sleep in? Here's the second thing Peter says about Jesus that we must see if we want to really be the church. Jesus must not just be Lord, he must also be living. Notice he says, you are the Christ, the son of the 
living God. Now, one thing that's happening here you need to understand is Pan, you know, this famous God that this city was named for for so long that people gather to worship in all these horrible ways. He is the only Greek God who is believed to have died. And he died when Jesus was a teenager. Like a decade or two ago, the Greeks kind of declared, Pan is dead. And so what Peter is doing here is he's kind of taking a dig. He's kind of taking a dig at all these pagan religions. He's saying, you know, we worship the living God. Your gods aren't even alive. And friends, we actually see this contrast all throughout the Bible. In fact, the thing that distinguishes the God of Israel from the God of all the other peoples they encounter is this one fact. Our God is alive and your God is not. Our God has power and your God does not have power. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. When Moses confronts Pharaoh and all of the Egyptian gods. My favorite one, though, is when Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this scene? Elijah himself, prophet of God, prophet of Yahweh, he comes and he takes on all these prophets of Baal. And there's kind of a contest that's proposed. They're going to each build a little fire pit. And they're going to pray that their God would come and light it on fire. And the prophets of Baal go first. And so they put all the wood out and they get it all set. And they start to pray and they start to dance. And they even slash themselves. And they're saying, come on, Baal, light it up. And what does Elijah do? He does one of my favorite things in scripture. He talks trash to them. I love this. Seriously, it's the best. He's like, you know, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe you should pray louder. Maybe he's busy, you know. Gods get busy too. Maybe he's taking a nap. It's been a long day for Baal, you know. And then nothing ever happens. The wood just sits there. And then it's Elijah's turn. He says, you know, and then he just gets a little cocky, which I also think is awesome. Because you're going to be cocky about anyone. Be cocky about the Lord. He's like, put some water on it. You know, like, in fact, let's build a moat. Let's just drench this thing. And they're just like, yeah, we'll see how he can do this, right? And then he just prays, like, God, do your deal. And then, whoosh, not even a lick of water is left. He just comes down and consumes it. And here's the point. The church is the church when we know our God is alive. When we know this is just isn't some like religious tradition or dead practice. When we don't just go through the motions and try to do life on our own strength. And far too many churches, far too many communities, far too many followers of Jesus are doing life this way. We come and we worship, but we live as if our God is not really alive. Friends, let me ask us as a church. This is a good question for us to wrestle with. Don't answer too quick. Is our God alive? Are we seeking and following him as a community, as the God, the living God of heaven and earth? who has power and presence and sovereignty. I mean, think about Cedar Mill Bible Church. Are the gates of a Hades trembling at our presence? Like, uh-oh, here comes Cedar Mill. Right? Did the gates of Hades tremble at the thought of the American church? Do our friends observe the fact that we have a living God? Do our coworkers See us as the people of the living God? Do our kids experience us as parents who worship the living God? I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't think enough. I don't think enough. 
This is why I think so many kids are looking for other experiences. That's why they're bored with church. Because they don't see a living God. They see kind of religion. They see monotonous religion. They, they see some dedication. But they don't see, often enough, an alive faith in the living God. One of my favorite stories that I've ever read is of a father whose teenage daughter starts dating this guy. A, a big moment for a, a, a father of a teenage daughter. Um, and he's not a good guy. He's sort of a sketchy guy. And he's into some not so great stuff. And this, his daughter starts to fall for this guy. And she's getting more and more attached. And he's pulling her in to a lot of the activities and things that he's doing. And the father is very, very worried. And so this, this father goes to one of his buddies. He's like, I don't know what to do. My daughter's dating this guy. And like, she just seems like enthralled with him. And he's not a good influence on her. And he's kind of leading her down some paths that I think are pretty sketchy. And I just don't know what to do. And so this dad's buddy says, well, you know, I think one of the reasons she's dating him is because he's just offering her a better story than you're offering her. And he's like, what? He's like, yeah, I mean, you think about it. The story, the life that this guy is offering your daughter is one of adventure and intrigue and thrill and excitement. And, and the story you're offering is attend church, get good grades, and don't get in trouble. And he's like, I don't know, if I'm 17, one of those looks more appealing than the other. So the dad starts to think about this. And he's like, oh man, maybe there's something to that. And finally it clicks for him and he says, okay. He goes full court press and he rallies his family and he says, we're gonna, we're gonna do something for the Lord and with Jesus and we're gonna go big. And he says, okay, I found these people in like South America and they're living in poverty and we're gonna change their lives. We're gonna, we're gonna work with God to do something for some people in this world and to bring the gospel somewhere. So they start flying down and they start working with these people and building relationships and sacrificially giving and helping and learning from them. And like, and there's things happening and then they get a chance to share the gospel and some people receive Christ. And all of a sudden, one day, this daughter tells her dad, yeah, I broke up with that guy, right? Like his story isn't as exciting to me, as it once was. The story I'm living now is so much bigger and so much better and so much more thrilling and so much more risky than the story that I was being offered before. Now that, I'm not even sure if that's a true story. So, and yet it speaks to me. And there's some truth in it for the church. What kind of a story are we living? Are we living the story of a God who is alive or are we just living the story of people who do religion? It doesn't have to be a mission trip overseas. It's just a daily life of faith, a daily life of trusting God, of walking with him and following him and taking some risks and living for the kingdom and not just for ourselves and getting out of our comfort zones because we trust him so much and we know that he's alive and he'll come through. You see, we, we gather to remember that our God is living. 
The church matters, friends. The church has power and impact and appeal in this world when at its very center, Jesus is Lord and alive. We're doing this not for us, but for him, not in our own strength, but in his power. You see, that's when the church is the church. That's when the gates of Hades start to shake. See, we don't just gather here for a nice, comforting, tranquil, and tender religious experience that will get us through the week. We gather to remember who our God is. And in turn, to remember that we are his people. We gather to remember his amazing grace, that he loved us so much that he endured the death we deserved and were destined for. We gather to remember his amazing power that he walked into the grave, looked evil in the face, and defeated evil and death and sin once and for all. It's an amazing story. And we gather to remember, friends, that when the risen Jesus the Christ, Lord and living, is in the center of our community, we can together live a story of faith and confidence that will cause the gates of hell to tremble. And one of the ways we remember that is through this meal that we're going to celebrate in just a minute. You see, it's not just a meal, it's a declaration to ourselves, and it's a declaration to the evil of this world. We serve a God that already defeated you. We serve a God that loves us and empowers us and leads us and guides us. You see, that's this meal. It's not, again, not just a somber religious moment. It's something so much more. When it says we declare his death, it says when we, we take this meal, we declare his death. We declare the power of God. We declare to the forces of evil in this world that we are his people. You see, when we start to become this kind of church, now all of a sudden people start like not saying why church, like why would I go to church? It'd be like, ugh, I don't know if I'm brave enough to go to church. Those people seem sold out. They seem on fire. Maybe I'm nervous to go to church, but it doesn't seem like a waste of time. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to share this meal. We're going to remember who we are. We're going to declare who our God is. The tables are open. I'm going to dismiss you in just a second. You can stand, go to the tables. Grab a cup. There's a wafer in there. It's going to be the wafer we'll, we'll share. There's some juice. But we do this together, friends. This is a why church moment. This is, sometimes we treat communion as an individual moment. It's a communal moment. It's a together moment. It's we're reminding one another who our God is in our midst. So today, as you go to the tables, I do not want it to be quiet in here. It's like turning greet times two. Introverts, I know you're struggling today. We won't do this every time. But as you go to the tables, greet someone. Say hi to someone. Look someone in the eyes. Remember who we are together. Encourage someone. Say something kind. Say something encouraging. If you can't think of anything, just say, I like your outfit. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. Just say it. They'll feel good about it. All right? All right. That's, that's it. The tables are open. Let's move to communion.